0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: I'm Greg Benson, host of the Speakeasy, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN has a brand new look, but we're sharing the same delicious stories. Invest in the future of food radio by becoming a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. So you don't, don't shun the, the, devil, the devil, devil with your rock, rock and roll
0: load. No. Knows that-
1: Welcome back to The Speakeasy. My name is Greg Benson, flying solo here this week. Uh, Damon and Souther are still recovering from the long 4th of July weekend. As far as I know, they still have all 10 of their fingers. Saw Souther on Monday. He's still in one piece, more or less. <laughs> Damon is uh, you know, still out doing his cowboy thing in California. So y'all are stuck with me for our post-4th of, J- post-4th of July show. But uh, I hope everybody had a good weekend, hope you all got some time at the beach, got some time to just kick back and relax, had some time with family, and also just sort of, um, I don't know, we said this around Memorial Day, but enjoyed uh, a little smidgen of normalcy within reason, you know, because the world isn't entirely back to normal yet. Despite the fact that to-go cocktails have been taken away, you know, our staff, staffs everywhere are still working super hard. We still have all of those, at least in New York City. Nice little outdoor hutches, which means everyone has to walk farther in more heat. And I just want to say that, you know, it's okay now. I know we were a little tut-tutty about pretending that the world was normal all of last year, and I'd like to think it was within good reason But I think that now we're at a point where you can enjoy that within a little bit of reason and within a lot of empathy for the people that are still working hard. And I hope you're still tipping like a maniac. And I hope that you are putting good energy out there and wearing a mask when you are told to wear a mask and just being good people. I guess that's what I'm saying. Just continue being good people. And speaking of good people... Joining me in the studio today is my friend, Mandy, whose name last name I'm realizing I don't know how to pronounce. I've only ever seen it written down. Mandy, how is your last name pronounced?
2: It's Naglich. It's, it, it actually is very similar to how it's spelled. It's so funny how people, that CH at the end really appears as a challenge often. Well, that's,
1: yeah, I was going to go with Naglich and go real kind of like, you know, Germanic with it. But we have Mandy Naglich. Uh Current gold medal homebrew winner and beer journalist, Mandy. Thanks so much for jumping in the studio with us and hanging out today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be your post Fourth of July guest.
1: Yeah. Yes. So what did, what did you do this weekend? What'd you get up to?
2: Yeah, I was um, down in Texas for the first time. I have family there, so I was down there for the first time since Thanksgiving of 2019. Um, so fun to get down there. I was on the lake in Austin, uh, watched some fireworks. You know, did what you were saying, tipped a lot to all of my beach bartenders and wore a mask even in Texas where they want you to. So.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, what is it? I mean, Austin is this, you know, fun little blue oasis in a very, very red state. So what what was it? You know, I mean, Texas was one of the first places that very famously was just like everything's free. Just like (laughs) threw open the door to the candy store and was just like, go in, do what you want. The world is back. So what was what was it like being in, in Austin for the first time since uh the world broke a year and a half ago?
2: Yeah. Surprisingly, I would say I saw more masks there than um in New York City. I mean, I live down in downtown New York and uh pretty much since we had that fireworks show to celebrate 70%, I have barely seen masks down here. Um, so yeah, and of course, I mean in the airport on the airplanes, still totally required. Um, so that in our Ubers and things like that. So um that was Hang on a yeah we had but, a um, fireworks
1: show to celebrate 70 percent
2: yeah do you not remember that like i think it was a tuesday night
1: and they Cuomo didn't invite was us like, out in brooklyn go. no <laughs> i think it was i think it might have just been like five die specifically it's like Shh, don't tell the hoi polloi across the east river no i this think it's just there was between us
2: there was like 17 locations throughout the state it was like a state thing not just a city thing what so, yeah i'm gonna have to send it to you now that you. um yeah, it was, it was a, it was supposed to be like a, our big statewide celebration. Like we did it.
1: Oh my God. I'm having so much FOMO, which is post fear of missing out by the way.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, dang. Okay. Yeah. Send me, send me the video so I can feel sad that I wasn't there. <laughs> so, uh, you are a beer person. Where did you go for some brews when you were in Texas?
2: Yeah, my, I was I was just outside of Texas in Wimberley most of the time. So there's this farmhouse brewery there called Rough House, um, which actually the brewer was at Jester King, which is kind of the Austin legendary farmhouse brewery. Um, mm-hmm. But now they're brewing on their family ranch, um, using all native yeast that was coming from the ranch itself. And they actually have some really cool caves, like limestone caves under the ranch where they're fermenting um, beer now. So I got to poke my head down in there, take the ladder like 20 feet down. And um it was awesome. So that was my my go-to while I was down there was definitely rough house beers. Um but then of course live oak is another great one just just south of Austin, making really great German styles that aren't kind of um as popular right now. Uh things like Grisitzki, which is a smoked, very, very light table beer. Um so I had to had to get over there and get my weird uh German lager fix as well
1: of course you got to you got to get it where you can well let me let, let's 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 talk about that a little bit because this is something that you and I have in common in terms of beer is an appreciation for these like lighter more air quotes obscure styles like i think you and i are both of the opinion that it is vastly more difficult to brew a subtle like 4 to 5% well balanced farmhouse or god god help you if you try and brew and sell a mild in this country <laughs> but i think it's so much more difficult to pull that off than to pull off like some sort of crazy triple ipa with like milk sugar and you know lacto fermented and you know papaya slurry or whatever in the in in the brew like are those styles that are are people starting to wake up from this barrage of sledgehammer brewing styles and realize that there is something to be said for the complexity that it takes to make, say, you know, a Krasinski or a, even a Kolsch, something like that.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that appreciation has always been there. I think as at like the hype of that kind of new hazy New England IPA, there was still people, you know, out there waving their banners for Pilsner and things like that. Um, And frankly, it's easier to sell a beer if it says IPA or pale ale. I don't know if you've had the Oxbow farmhouse pale ale. It's basically like a really solid Saison, but they call it a farmhouse pale ale just because people are more likely to try it. And that's a great way to get people in the farmhouse beer. So I'm all for that if that's helping the brewery and getting people to try something kind of new.
1: Um, I I love it in theory, but in practice, (laughs) as someone who had to sell people out of that, (laughs) <laughs> so many times when they see it on the menu, it's like, yes, pale ale, I love hops. I'll take that. I have to be like, you're not going to like this beer.
2: Uh, I don't know. I love that. I mean, it's hoppy. I love that one. But um, yeah, I definitely think education is – it's a tough thing when the style kind of blurs. Like, I mean, you were talking about a really nice, you know, subtle, well-balanced, even like a Kolsch. I feel like a lot of people would call that a session IPA now um, in some ways. So <laughs> I uh, – um i had a session ipa i was actually picking my parents my dog up from my parents house in philadelphia we went to their local brewery and i like said i was like this tastes like a lager to me i cannot believe this is an ipa and they're like well it's our session ipa that we cold ferment and blah 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 and i was like oh, okay so you just wanted to call it an ipa <laughs> um, but
1: it's kind of um, like i mean my one of my favorite examples of that that's been around for ages is uh rogue's dead guy ale which is actually a bock <laughs> but, but I, you know, what is it about us in this country where we will only step outside of our comfort zone if we are lightly lied to about what it is that we're drinking? <gasps>
2: That's a really great question. I think, I mean, I think it's just the comfort zone thing. I think people have, especially with a farmhouse ale, one experience where they order something that's maybe just a little too funky for them. And they're like, well, I've never had this experience with say a Pilsner or an IPA and just go back to where they're comfortable. I think, um, like you said, a lot of it falls on the bar staff or brewers um, to educate people about these different styles and what to expect. I think one of the best things I've heard bartenders do is really compare these like sour beers or farmhouse ales to wines or a sparkling wine more than what people think of as beer. And I think that sets the expectation expectations really nicely for people. Um, because, yeah, I think people, when they think beer, they think like they're comforting kind of thing that they know and just like hanging out and having something and that they don't have to think too hard in some of these styles. Even a dark mild, you know, if it's your first one um takes a little brain power to kind of understand what's going on so
1: well yeah you have to you have to relate to it a little bit more like i mean that's the thing about i mean you know and i i i love i love ipas i have a four pack of money in my from barrier in my fridge right now that i'm super pumped about cuz it's very fresh and it's good but it's not a particularly subtle flavor And I think that, you know, you, there's something nice about something that is so intense that you don't really have to engage with it on an intellectual level. And, you know, I I don't always want to engage with my beer on an intellectual level, but when I do, you know, it's, I, I tend to reach for stuff that's more, you know, low ABV and complex and that has been brewed with, you know, a little bit more I don't want to say care and attention, but I will say an eye towards cultivating these flavors that don't like jump out and and batter your tongue in submission, you know.
2: Yeah, and to that point, I mean, what what do you think is the perfect size pour of beer at like a tap room or brewery or beer focused bar?
1: Uh I like I like a good ten ounces. Um, I think ten ounces is pretty good. Uh, I. Eight eight is a little bit too little for me. I always kind of leaves me wanting more and 12, I think can be a little bit much depending on the style. Um, but I would drink pretty much anything in like a a nice 10 ounce pour. Plus then it'll stay at the temperature that's designed to be served at when it's coming off the taps. Uh, What about you?
2: Yeah, no, I'm def- I'm a big fan of, I would say like the eight to six ounce pour, honestly, for that temperature reason, as well as I think to your point, when you say you're left wanting a little bit more, I think that means you're kind of engaging with the beer the entire time you're drinking it. Whereas anything more than that, I think you start to kind of not, like, like you're saying, you're not really thinking about it. It's kind of just the thing in your glass that you're finishing and it's getting warm as you're finishing it. Um, so I'm a really, really big fan. Anywhere that I see people either giving like half pours or eight ounce pours, because um, if you are going to go for something a little more complex or something new, I think really thinking about it the whole time you're drinking it and finishing it and being like, "Wow, that was really interesting." Um, your brain is still kind of engaged when it's that that small of a pour.
1: Absolutely. I think I think I just drink. Um, I think I just drink ten ounces at the speed with which I should be drinking six and four. Ounces. <laughs> I think maybe that's just where I come down. Also, just a persistent dislike of flights. Like, again, it's one of these things that I want to like so badly, but whoever invented flights has clearly never worked a Saturday night in a busy bar.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's what I I know. I'm a flights lover, but um, I know that the extra labor that goes in there um, is definitely both annoying and I mean, some of the like flights paddles, they put these beers on to make people try to carry them are just watching them is painful for me. Um, I know. Yeah. Maybe,
1: maybe it's the paddle. Maybe that's the part of it that I don't like, because it's like, why would you serve this on something that's so unbalanced and is basically just like a weapon? I don't know. I have this pet theory that whoever invented the flight paddle was actually like, some sort of super kinky sadist who not only really enjoyed having these things behind the bar, but also enjoys the suffering of like watching people try and balance these stupid things as they navigate around like so many drunk people at six p.m. on a Friday. But that's such, that's such a
2: good point. I actually have no idea why so many are shaped like paddles like that. Because neither do I. You know, I don't Germany, know where that comes from. When you're getting like a small pour or like you're doing cold service, right? It's like a really easy handle for bartenders to carry out to your table and just put the whole kind of like tray. They have a handle sticking out of the top easily, like easy to place down. And that's how um, live Oak kind of shapes their flights as well. It's like um, almost like a six pack carrier that has like a handle. So they like cannot spill. They're kind of in stange glasses. Um, I have no idea where the paddle comes from.
1: <laughs> I will say that uh, it is fun. If you are working after hours at a place that has flight paddles to play a uh, bar cricket but at least at least until you break a glass and then your general manager says, okay, we're done here uh, but that part that part of flight paddles I enjoy
2: there you go there is there is a use for them I guess
1: yeah well let's let's talk about because you're also you know you've used the word education a bunch of times already in the first few minutes of this conversation and that's such a big focus for you how did you get into this because you didn't come into the the world of beer you know straight out of you know being a a fresh 21 year old and having your first ever drink I'm sure on your birthday and saying oh yeah beer like this is what I want to do you kind of came at this at a roundabout path so tell us how you got there
2: yeah I think I mean I've always been um very interested in doing things myself like I would you know cook a lot make my own bread that kind of stuff um and so one day I've always been somewhat into craft beer I think um being from Pennsylvania, we had victory, um, very early on for me. So like my first taste of golden monkey is really what got me in. Um, and I was just like, why, why am I not doing this myself as well? You know, I make everything else that I eat and drink and make dinners for people. Um, so I got into homebrewing and then in 2016, I won a gold medal at the national homebrew competition, Um, For my saison, actually, we're talking about farmhouse beers. (laughs) And uh, the Cicerone program, like, had a table there, you know, kind of um, telling people about the program, which is a beer certification program. And they said, "Oh, if you're, you know, this good of a brewer, you're already probably halfway there on being able to pass some of these levels of um, testing and certifications." And that studying for that test is really where I. The whole world of beer opened up to me so much more than just like, oh, I like different styles of beer um, and making it. It really showed me kind of the whole 360 of what is involved in production and beer culture, history, styles, all that kind of stuff. Um, And so I've been really pursuing that uh, ever since, since 2016.
1: That's amazing. Now you're and you don't just, you know, make the stuff now. You actually you've gotten to the point where beyond making it, you're, you're writing about it.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, I, uh, left my full-time job in marketing in 2018 to start, uh, writing about it more teaching classes. Um, I got a certification in tasting just generally from a program called Araxa. Uh, so now I can teach people how to taste beer, talk about beer, um, Blog about beer, every <laughs> everything all the time, uh, which has been really cool. And um, it's amazing how many little kind of things you can put together to build a career out of, like focusing and learning about uh, this one this one topic.
1: I mean, there's just that—that's the crazy thing about it. Is there's just so much in there to learn. Like you can think you have a pretty good grasp on it, and then something will, you know, completely change your your perspective on it. You know, I remember, you know, I, I, when I was working, you know, I was a young whippersnapper at 21. I was working at a brewery in Scotland and I was like, oh, yeah, I got, you know, I got my, my, my knowledge of global hops down pat. I know like you could t- I could taste a beer from pretty much anywhere blind and be like, oh, yeah, this has hops from this particular region of the world. And then I remember getting my first sour beer ever and being like, what the fuck is this? And just having the whole a whole nother realm of this crazy, beautiful liquid opened up to me. There's just always more stuff to learn, you know?
2: Yeah, I totally, I mean, to, to the point about sour beer, I think as a home, like getting into home <clears> brewing <throat> and learning about yeast and how different, um, how beer and brewing uses yeast so differently than other alcoholic beverages, you know, it really... Um, that's what the flavor is coming from for the most part, or you're choosing to step away from that flavor and accentuate flavors like hops and malts. But, um, you know, in wine, it's kind of like, what's the yeast that's already in the environment. Um, distilling is like what yeast can just chew through this and get to this level of alcohol. Um, and in beer, it's so, it's so subtle, you know, the difference between different strains of even like specifically Belgian yeasts or a German lager compared to an American lager, like is going to give you two completely different beers. And I think that, you know, getting to know fermentation and seeing all these flavors created by this like yeast um, really opened things up to me and made me interested. And I mean, that's why I went with a saison because those yeast strains are crazy compared to an American um, kind of ale strain that's just very clean.
1: Yeah. And how do you control for that in a homebrew environment? Because those yeasts are snickety. Like they don't, they don't always do what you want in like an industrial hyper controlled facility. How do you get them to, to behave and listen to you when you're just making them in your house?
2: I mean, I have a, a very, um, I would say both sophisticated and like not sophisticated system. I, I pulled everything out of the inside of a mini fridge, like all the shelves and things. And I use that as my fermentation chamber, but it also has a heating element and a dehumidifier in it, um, that's hooked up to kind of like a temperature control on my wall. So I can, I'm pretty, I would say able to keep, um, my yeast under management within like half a degree, which is more than even some small, um, microbreweries are able to do. So yeah, I definitely am, I know how to keep it doing what I want as far as like temperature management and, um, pressure in the chamber and things like that.
1: And that's awesome. I could could (laughs) geek out about this stuff all day, but we are at the halfway point of the show, so we're going to take a quick break and hear from some of our sponsors, but we'll be right back with homebrew extraordinaire and beer journalist Mandy Naglich on the Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. Stay tuned. All of us here at HRN are excited to reveal the fresh new look of food radio. We may have a new identity and a new website, which is super sexy by the way, so go check it out. But we're still producing the same amazing content we've been making for 12 years. Actually not the same. Older, more daring, more compelling stories are getting added every day to our archive of over 15,000 episodes. And we couldn't have made it this far without the support of listeners just like you from around the world thanks to our community of members the speakeasy is on the air along with 40 other weekly shows thanks to our community of members back bar is on the air along with 40 other weekly shows contributions from folks just like you give hrn the security we need to stay on the airwaves during say a global pandemic and then reopen our studio with gusto knowing you'll be there to support us when we come back That's why, if you can, I'd like to encourage you to become a monthly sustaining member of HRN to show how much shows like mine and the food radio we produce mean to you. If you do, you'll get access to our top secret menu, which gathers exclusive discounts and offers from all of our favorite food and beverage brands and gives you and you alone, and our other members of course, access to these special goodies. You can enjoy insider pricing on lots of sought after brands and they'll even ship right to your door. So please, join our community of monthly donors, and if you do, you can enjoy these perks all summer long. A gift of $5 or even $10 a month gives our community the consistent stability it needs to keep the voice of America's food movement alive and thriving. So please, become a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org donate. And in advance, thanks. And we are back. You were listening to the speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. Today we have Mandy Naglich, homebrewer extraordinaire and beer journalist, who just won her second homebrewing gold medal last month. Tell us a little bit about that. And oh, yeah, congratulations, too.
2: (laughs) Yeah, thank you. I mean, this was definitely a surprising one for me because I was entering some different styles. But I got it in the uh, Imperial Stout category, which is a huge – it's one of the top categories at the National Homebrew Competition, which already has 5,000 entries. So um, it's like a big category of the biggest competition. I believe it's the biggest homebrew competition in the world. So definitely really excited about that. And it's a recipe I've been messing with for a couple of years. So happy to see it. Come out that's amazing top. yeah
1: it's, i i mean i feel i feel bad for shitting on imperial styles for like the first <laughs> half of this show i didn't know I, I i actually didn't know what you wanted for i figured it was a saison again but i guess this is kind of like you know the people that have been brewing double ipas for a while now are kind of like fucking around with these kind of lighter more easygoing styles is this just kind of the opposite for you like you started doing farmhouses and you're like all right now it's time for me to mix it up and do an imperial stout
2: yeah i um So in 2018, I actually got a silver for a Belgian golden strong. So I kind of have been like, okay, Belgian East, I've I've got you. Um, And so the imperial Stout style that I did was really more of the style uh, that was coming from England. So that kind of fruity character, um, a lot of like cherry and raisin going on, uh, as opposed to what we might think of imperial stouts in the US, which might be a little bit sweeter, um, maybe bourbon barrel aged and that kind of stuff. It's really, um, kind of a different side of stout that is a little bit more classic and, uh, English focused. I went to London a couple times in 2019 and got really inspired by those trips. So, um, learned what stout could be. And when it's not American hopped up on bourbon barrels and vanilla extract and things like that.
1: We love our strong flavors. Yes, we do.
2: Uh-huh. <laughs>
1: So what was the, I mean, what what was kind of the, the flavor profile of your, of your gold medal winner?
2: Yeah, I think it was really, um, focused on that kind of stouts can be super roasty and, um, because of like, uh, roasted barley, but that was a little more subtle in the background of mine. And it was really kind of focused on that yeast character that comes from English ale yeast, which is that like kind of dark black cherry round, almost a little bit of like cola flavor coming through. And, um, it did age for quite a while, um, almost six months. So the hop characteristic, which I was just using fuggles and things like that, because um, they're English, um, was a little more subtle. So just like a little tone of like earth in the background, but uh, really focused on that English Englishese character, which I'm excited that the judges liked because uh, I, I entered this one as well in 2019, I think, and it got rip, ripped pretty hard. So uh, Wait, definitely so the, improved.
1: The exact the exact same recipe and no, and just with from... this
2: yeast with the, oh, okay. like the idea of it being super yeast forward, and they were like, "This is totally out of balance for like a stout." Um, I typically don't lean toward super malty flavors, um, so had to to learn to kind of balance what I like with what fits the guidelines and what they're judging for.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, I mean, but that that also, you know. It, it, It would have been funny if it was the exact same beer and it got ripped apart and then two years later won a gold medal. But it also wouldn't surprise me because tastes change so fast in this beer world that we Mm -hmm. live in, you know?
2: Yeah. I mean, the one thing about I would say like homebrewing and the BJCP is they don't change as quickly as uh, what the actual industry um does you know the brewing association puts out new guidelines that they're going to ch- judge gavf which is the great american beer festival against every year if they change the guidelines to kind of what tastes and what the market is um trending towards whereas bjcp we haven't gotten new guidelines since i believe twenty twenty eighteen. 2018 i was gonna say 2015 but i think it's 2018 so um you know they've made a couple addendums of course there's a hazy ipa category now but um Really, it's, it's, a, it's slow moving and they really focus on kind of these classic styles that beer was built upon around the world.
1: So what do you and I suspect I already know the answer to this question, but what do you think is the better approach and what approach should we take with beer? Should we take that more kind of classic like this is how it was always meant to be like this is, the, you know, the, appreciating this beverage for the way it's been for millennia? Or should we go with the sort of tech world, move fast and break things mentality that definitely seems to be, you know, some of the the hottest, sexiest breweries out there adopting?
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's probably a balance, like as, as everything, there probably should be balance there. But I definitely credit the BJCP for a lot of these cool um, kind of historical styles coming back. I even would say things like Goza, which are now quite popular. They definitely aren't as classic as they're described in the BJCP, but I don't think a lot of brewers might even come across these styles or think about them without these guidelines existing that have kind of been, um, like the rule book for brewing. Uh, and so I think they deserve a lot of credit for keeping these things around and, um, they could definitely update a little bit, but, uh, you know, beer has been around for a really, really long time, and as as much mm-hmm. as we think hazy IPA and is everything right now, um, we'll see how long it lasts and what what happens next.
1: So, well, and you and I, I think, share affinity for a style that kind of came up, came out of nowhere, and seemingly disappeared just as quickly a few summers ago. But the brute IPA, which I think is a kind of really nice uh, marriage of those two ideologies, where it's this, you know. It's a new way of thinking about a fairly Americanized version of the IPA style, but it's also super bone dry and very heavily carbonated and almost kind of drinks like a like a dry sparkling wine, which I think is a nice sort of marriage of those two uh approaches to this beverage, wouldn't you think?
2: Yeah. And I think something that's cool about Brute IPA is what really allowed it to be what it is, be so dry like that, is the use of an enzyme that goes in and breaks down some more of the malt sugars that yeast wouldn't be able to break down themselves, or you can't break down through enzymes um, in the mass just through heat. So it is like a nice combination of, it's almost a little more like that classic American West Coast IPA, but with this little technology bump that allows it to be super dry and effervescent like that. Um, So yeah, brood IPA, awesome. Not enough out there. I actually had one when I was in Austin at Real Ale. They're still making one called moonwalk because it hits zero gravity. So space pun. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: that hit me in the funny bone harder than I expected. That's good. I like that. Yeah. Well, let's, I mean, let's talk a little bit about let's, let's, uh, try and predict the future, which is always one of my favorite things to do on this podcast because I'm wrong so very often but you know where is the future for for a lot of these microbreweries like where is it in this kind of escalation of styles and trying to find the new thing it's like this week people like milkshake IPAs oh no wait they like them super dry wait no they don't they like them super hazy or is it in this kind of return to the classics that I think you're seeing a lot of one of our mutual favorite breweries in D.C., Right Proper, really, you know, they have their their dry saison that they brew so many different iterations of, and they kill it, and it really is yeah. a return to a pretty, you know, a classical appreciation of beer that I don't think you see very much, or is it just, you know, is, is the future just in uh, more hop sediment, yeah. less of everything else?
2: I actually kind of see it mirroring um, wine in a way. Like, you know how you have these, uh, I mean, and I love rosé, but like a rosé drinker, right? Like you're going to brunch, you want like your rosé. You don't really want to think about it. You don't even really necessarily care if it comes from Provence. Um, And I see that a little bit of these like milkshake IPAs, the um, still like, you know, the lineup culture for um, some of the hazy IPAs or even imperial stouts of um, putting donuts in imperial stouts and things like that. Like it's a novelty it's something that people want to share in. Um, it's something that's very Instagrammable, but then, um, what I've really been focusing on the last couple of months and I think is a really cool rise to see is these super hyper-local farm breweries, which I see growing almost equally as quickly, um, you know, that are focusing on things like rough house using their native yeast. What's the Tewa of their area? Just kind of like how, um, wine has moved into like a little bit of this natural wine and how, how can we get back to Taiwan and things like that and not think of barefoot or, uh, what's the kangaroo wine, yellowtail. Um, you know, so I think I'm really interested there's this, uh, place in Virginia, not too far from right proper, honestly, um, called crooked run who has this new native program where they're only sourcing yeast from the brewery property and only using, um, ingredients. I believe it's within a 60 mile radius. And I had one of their beers. It was made with yeast found on elderflower petals. And it was just like a really beautiful mixed fermentation saison that I think, you know, it can't be recreated anywhere. So it's like half of, I feel like is going this like hype route, this like super Instagrammable, you know, hazy pink IPA with passion fruit. And then the other half is like, how, how close can we, how much will you pay for like a really beautifully artisan crepe? like crafted product that you just can't get anywhere else.
1: Sure. And I don't want to, I don't want to come off as a snob on the radio. I like to say that for my personal <laughs> life, but um, you know, I, I do believe that there is, I think there is a space for both. Like I don't want to totally. come off on this as the guy who's like shitting on milkshake IPAs because I had one last week and I really enjoyed it. You know, mm-hmm. it was, it was not subtle, but that's okay. That's not <laughs> why I bought it. Um, and I, I, I like that there is, a path for both people in both both types of folks in the world that want to go that way mm-hmm. and i think it's uh, I, I i i'm just in favor of more education and more people knowing how these styles are made and i think as long as you make it competently whether it's you know with locally sourced elderflower yeast or whether it's with you know pineapple slurry and a donut like if you do it well and you're not phoning it in and you're doing it for the right reasons, I say go for it.
2: Yeah, and I kind of think, you know, every person who's ordering an orange creamsicle IPA, like when I look at them, I'm like, at least it's not a White Claw, right? They're still in <laughs> the uh, beer, beer realm trying something that's crafted, you know, by American brewers and things like that, so... I'm all yeah.
1: for it. <laughs> God, you had, a, you had a statistic about Truly before we started the show that blew my fucking mind. And I can't, I both can't remember it and I don't want to steal your thunder. So what, what was it you were saying about it? I
2: think, I know I was trying to like make sure I'm totally correct on this, but I believe um, the first half of the year, I should give credit for to Brian Roth who tweeted about this, but the first half of the year, um, all of Sam Adams skews, of beer sold almost, I think it was a couple hundred thousand dollars of, um, one variety pack of the very variety pack of truly, they sold the same amount as far as IRI track sales in the first half of this year. So that's pretty crazy to, um, think about same Adams where I think like, especially this time of year, I see summer ale on so many taps. Um, you know, they obviously have their loggers and everything that people I feel like are buying year round and truly is just crushing it for that company.
1: I also just want to know if the berry variety pack they're like yeah and that's our third best seller too it's like you should see the <laughs> I, don't, I don't know I, I don't even pay attention to the flavor honestly to me it's just colors like when I reach for a, if, I, if I'm in a situation where I'm reaching for hard seltzer it's like I think it's time for an orange one.
2: Yeah yeah they're <laughs> like popsicles. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> it's like totally. the fla- the flavor is immaterial. It's just like, mm, yeah, that tastes blue. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, like I would love it if if it's like, yeah, and that doesn't even sell as well as our other top 3 best sellers, too.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I can't even imagine things that like aren't, you know, on shelves in variety packs like bars selling them. When I, over 4th of July, I saw many a bucket of uh hard seltzers that are sold by the bucket. Um so <laughs>
1: Uh, so you've got that on one hand and then you've got limestone caves on the other one. Like, I don't want to leave without picking your brain <laughs> about these limestone caves that you were in over the weekend in Texas.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really cool. I mean, one of the things that I definitely wanted to do when I was traveling in 2019 was like go to the Pilsner Kell caves where Pilsner Kell has been made for forever, centuries. Um, and it's cool to think that we can use this like traditional technique and somewhere like Texas where you aren't necessarily thinking of lagering things cold underground. Um, and it's totally possible. So I think going back to those techniques and just what, how a barrel of beer breathes differently underground in um, that kind of temperature and environment so different than lagering it, you know, using glycol or chilling it down using technology. Um, I think is really cool. And I think we'll see more and more of those techniques kind of come to the surface as these smaller, hyper-local-focused breweries start opening and seeing what they can work with on their land.
1: Sure, sure. And it is, you know, I mean, yeast is a living organism and living organisms aren't designed really to live in, like, you know, perfectly temperature-controlled environments. Like, there is a certain degree of chaos that leads to, you know, the development of things like personality, whether you're talking about yeast or a dog or a human being. And I I, you know, I haven't made it down to Roughhouse yet, but now it's on my list now that I know that they are inviting a little bit of that controlled um entropy into their process.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think just the thinking about using, you know, traditional techniques, there's there isn't necessarily really a reason to do decoction mashing anymore like they had to in German loggers because our malts are so modern and modified now. But there's also people out there, you know, who are growing and malting their own malt just so they can do decoction mashing the way that it was done traditionally, which is pretty cool.
1: That's amazing. And so you, you said that um, the brewer at this place with the limestone caves was a, um, a former, uh, it was a veteran of Jester King, which very famously does a lot of wild brewing. Is that something that they were using, that they were taking this whole crazy environment that they just have at their disposal were they using that to their advantage and doing any sort of wild fermentation down there
2: yeah so all of their yeast is um like sourced from the ranch that the brewery is sitting on um other than they just started a, lo- a lager program but yeah so that's totally like hill country yeast from their own ranch um out in wimberley but he was at uh jester king and then went to blue owl which is a little bit more of a controlled um souring program all their beers are sour but they're not all uh you know cool shipped or open, naturally um natural wild yeast fermented
1: god that's so cool i just love <laughs> i i love that that's a thing that people are waking up to like i mean a, a, a cool a cool ship actually I'll, I'll give i'll give this to you if our if our <laughs> listeners aren't familiar with the cool ship mandy would you care to take this one away
2: yeah, so a cool ship is kind of a, a device that used to be used to as the only way to chill beer, really. So it's um when everything's done boiling, they used to pump it into these giant kind of metal. I almost describe them as like a cookie sheet, like they're very shallow and very massive. Um, so you know, only a couple feet deep, and they would pump the whole uh wort of the beer in it to cool. And as the beer cools, natural yeast from the environment you know, is that's in the air around us at all times is what is getting inoculated into that wort as it lowers temperature. And that's what ends up fermenting the beer. So instead of picking your yeast, like I do when I'm homebrewing and knowing specifically what flavors will be created, it's really more of a crapshoot. Um, I will say that there is like a, people kind of know what, what their brewery flora is like, but, but um, that is what makes these spontaneous, super funky tart, sometimes sour beers. Um, so special is the air that's surrounding them. There's a place in Vermont called Hermit Thrush that also does cool shipping, just like places in Belgium, um, which is really cool. And we're seeing the cool ship come back more and more. I would say Allagash is one that has pretty a pretty intense, popular cool ship program where they've really learned how to work with that natural yeast in their environment and make it something still funky and interesting, but not so funky that people are a little turned off by it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, that's the thing that I think that, again, going back to the fact that we as Americans tend to dial everything up to 11. It's like, I think when a lot of people think sour beers, they think of stuff that's like, you know, your your Berliner Weisses or your Gozes, which are not, I, I always have to put that out there, not traditionally Crazy, crazy sour. There's like a little Mm -hmm. bit of a light. There should be a little bit of a light tartness on there, I think. But it shouldn't be like, you know, it shouldn't give you anything close to an actual pucker. Um, But I think when people think of wild that's what they think of. And Mm -hmm. bringing them down to earth a little bit and saying, no, 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 this this is, it's complex. It's lightly sour, but it's not going to just, you know, kick you in the teeth with acid. I think that that's uh, weirdly harder to get people on board with sometimes. Than like here try this it tastes like a lemon
2: (laughs) no definitely and i think that american style sour that kind of started with places like cascade that made that super punch you in the face puckery sour um fruited beer definitely gave rise to now these like lighter abv beers but still super sour super fruit forward um and that's not made in the traditional way that like a belgian sour um would be made that's way more complex has a lot more going on um so, yeah, definitely more challenging to the palate, especially if something in a cool
1: ship. Sure, sure. So, what, what, is, what is next for you? And what would you, circling sort of back to our question about where the, the microbrewing industry is going, what would you like to see happen next as we sort of venture into this brave new world of hazy you know, IPAs and white claws?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm super excited that travel is back open. Um, I'm ready to get out there and start going to more of these like traditional farmhouse breweries that aren't in the US that have been around for centuries and within the family for centuries. I'm going to get out to the Belgian and French countryside in not too long, which I'm really looking forward to. But I've really been focusing on some of these smaller um, local focus breweries. I have a A newsletter called Try This Farmhouse that's just every week talking to a different farmhouse brewer. And it's amazing to see them bring forward some of these classic styles. There's a place called Scratch Brewing in Illinois that's making classic sati, which is typically something you can't put on shelves because it's unboiled um, where it's made in Finland. So, you know, it's never sanitized. There there's things living in it. Um, so it's really cool that you can get on such a small scale and be able to bring back some of these classic styles that, um, you know, someone bigger, someone who's also producing a white claw or truly would just never even attempt. So that's really what I've been interested in is kind of digging into these really small, you know, places that don't even necessarily distribute and seeing what they're up to and what is keeping them inspired. And then telling their story to other people so they can find out about them.
1: That's wild. So, if you wanted, if someone wanted to uh, see all of these stories and hear them go down, how, what is the best way for them to follow you?
2: Yeah. So, um, my website, beerswithmandy.com. And then if you just type slash farmhouse, they'll be all, there's a couple dozen now um, posts with different brewers, I believe. And I'm Mandy everywhere um, Instagram, newly TikTok. My last TikTok's actually comparing. Complex sour beers to kettle sours, so that's kind of funny that that came up. Um, But yeah, and I'm just really talking about all those kind of classic styles or new and next unique styles, but not so much the hazy IPAs and pastry stouts. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's that's coming in a future newsletter, or <laughs> or maybe just never.
2: In I'm, yeah, I think I'm leaving that up to some other people who are definitely, you know, there are definitely people out there who specialize in that, and that's just not something that I have a focused on i really love the classic styles and getting people to try something new um that maybe isn't as easy to get in a bucket on july 4th
1: <laughs> everything that's old is new again I
2: guess. there you go <laughs> uh
1: well mandy thank you so so much for sitting down with us and uh giving me an opportunity to geek out about beer for an hour today i i, I will always always love uh chatting about you know just one of one of my absolute favorite beverages of all time it's great
2: there you go thank you yeah thanks for having me i'm always excited to geek out and talk about cool things that are happening in beer
1: ah uh, nerd stuff i love it <laughs> totally uh, well, that's going to do it for us this week on the Speakeasy. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to tune in to the more than 40 weekly shows that are happening across the network, which let's be honest, who doesn't? You can go to heritageradionetwork.org. Check out our brand new look as of yesterday. It is quite sexy. I encourage everyone to go and see what is up with that. And as always, if you would like to become a member, feel free to go to heritageradionetwork.org donate. Until next time, everybody. Shears.
0: So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. It's gonna get you...
1: The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter.